Hello, everyone. Welcome to Energy Security Cubed, where we explore the pillars that form the nexus of energy security in Canada and the world, energy, economics, and the environment. I'm your host, CEO of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Kelly Ogle. For today's podcast, we're featuring an interview with Vice Admiral Angus Topshi, Commander of the Royal Canadian Navy, to discuss the Navy's role in the Arctic in the context of its changing commercial importance. I'm Joe Kalnan, CGAI Fellow and Manager of CGAI's Energy Security Forum. At the time of this recording, Kelly is on a panel for the Energy Roundtable in Toronto to discuss the geopolitics of Canada's energy security, which means I'm doing today's review of energy security news solo. Uh, Also, just as a quick reminder to any listeners in Calgary, we have revived the Calgary Speaker Series dinner after a few years hiatus during COVID. We will be featuring CGAI Advisory Council member and CEO of Abacus Data, David Coletto, on the evening of December 14th to talk about what Canadians think about foreign policy and foreign affairs. You can get your tickets on our website, www.cgai.ca, under upcoming events. So let's get into some of the energy security news. Uh, Let's start off with a recently released Indo-Pacific strategy. Global Affairs Canada released its strategy on Sunday, November 27th, and the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Melanie Jolie, held a press conference on the strategy in Vancouver on the same day, which strangely overlapped with the Canada-Croatia World Cup soccer game. This is an unusual choice considering that the strategy outlines a generational Canadian response to the Indo-Pacific. Uh, You'd think that it would at least be on a Monday. South Korea and Japan are singled out as energy partners for Canada into the future, specifically for hydrogen and critical minerals. But it is easy to see the implications for traditional energy like LNG and crude oil between the lines. The strategy states on page 11 that Canada will, quote, strengthen critical minerals, hydrogen and clean energy sources, positioning Canada as a responsible and reliable energy security partner by engaging on new opportunities presented by Japan and the Republic of Korea's increased demand. This dovetails with the recent visits by Jolie and the Minister of Innovation, Francois-Philippe Champagne, to Japan and South Korea, where Jolie underlined Japan and South Korea's long-term interest in Canadian LNG, and Champagne discussed battery supply chains. Japan and South Korea are currently anxious to secure LNG due to their reliance on Russia's Sakhalin-2 LNG facility, which the Russian government could use to exert economic pressure on the countries into the future. Uh, Also notable in the strategy is the larger rhetoric on trade. This is not an onshoring or friendshoring manifesto. In opposition to the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, The watchword of this strategy is diversification of trade rather than nurturing domestic supply chains. While the strategy is somewhat tough on China, it still underlines the importance of protecting Canadian market access in the second largest economy. Uh, We can wonder how this will fit into the larger framework of Canada-US trade in light of the Inflation Reduction Act, future negotiations on USMCA, and the increasingly hostile American attitude toward China. Canada currently has a favored position under the Protectionist Inflation Reduction Act, uh, and that position is not guaranteed. Next up, I want to also talk about the upcoming price cap on Russian crude oil. As of Wednesday, November 30th, there is still no agreement on where to set the price cap on Russian crude oil. 
This price cap is meant to go into effect on Monday, December 5th. So time is extremely short on getting to an agreement on this crucial number. So the main cause of delay is a lack of agreement among European Union countries. Specifically, Poland, Estonia, and Lithuania are pushing for a very low price cap, which in their view would do more to drive down Russian oil revenues. The current numbers being thrown around between $62 and $75 in US dollars are thought to be too high to significantly impact Russian crude oil sales. Due to self-sanctioning and sanctions risks, customers have already depressed the price of Russia's flagship Urals to around $52 uh, US, according to Argus Media. Russia, for its part, has said repeatedly that it would not supply crude oil to any countries that abide by the price cap. But if Russian oil prices are below oil price cap levels, then we can have our cake and eat it too here. Since countries will be able to both abide by the price cap by buying Russian oil below the cap, and also not abide by the price cap by buying the oil at market price. So the West can pretend to enforce a cap and Russia can pretend to thumb its nose at it. Genius. Uh, the question after this though, is how often will the price cap change and will it change as oil prices change? If buying Russian oil becomes legitimized by this measure, will we expect the price of Ural's crude to edge up as more countries buy it? Forces that could keep Russian oil prices suppressed are the EU embargo on Russian seaborne oil imports and China's continued COVID-19 issues, both of which will depress demand for Russian oil in the short term. This may keep Russian oil prices contained below the price cap, which could prevent a confrontation. However, if general oil prices spike, we could see a major incident. I'd pay attention to India, which is towing the line between the West and Russia. If oil prices spike, India may have to pick appeasing Russia by breaking with the oil price cap or appeasing the West by placing the cap on Russia. Uh, last up, a recent report by the Brussels think tank Bruegel has calculated that the countries of the EU, the UK, and Norway have spent a combined 674 billion euros on shielding customers from rising energy costs since September 2021. By far, the highest cost has been borne by Germany, both in absolute spending and as a percentage of GDP. Germany has allocated over 264 billion euros to shielding households and businesses from the energy spike, which equates to around 7.4% of Germany's GDP. A major item on this front for Germany is the bailout and nationalization of Uniper, the cost of which has risen to over 53 billion euros. Uniper was the most direct casualty of Russia's gas cutoffs. It is being cut off from its Russian gas supply, while also being forced to continue providing low-cost gas to its customers. It has therefore suffered immense losses, as its revenues do not approach the cost of the replacement gas it has had to source. Germany is also directly subsidizing domestic energy consumption with price caps for gas and power. This move has received substantial criticism by other members of the EU for putting the fiscal power of the German state behind energy consumption, therefore directing gas supplies away from other EU countries. But the stakes for this are high. On Monday, the CEO of Volkswagen Passenger Cars wrote in a LinkedIn post that on the international stage, Germany and the European Union are rapidly losing their attractiveness and competitiveness 
the USA, Canada, China, Southeast Asia, and regions like North Africa are forging ahead. This follows up on BASF's statement in October that it will have to downsize permanently in Europe due to high energy costs. The departure of firms like Volkswagen and BASF could have very significant effects on the future of European employment and economic growth, and therefore major political effects. Something else to consider is rising European anger at the profits being made by U.S. LNG exporters and the perceived opportunism of the Inflation Reduction Act. A major gap could open up between the EU and the United States of America if the United States benefits from European losses. That uh, just about covers it. So with that, we'll switch over to our interview with Angus Topshi. I hope you like it. For today's interview, recorded November 23, 2022, we we discussed security in the Arctic and other waters surrounding Canada from the perspective of international trade, Canada's resources, and security. Really happy to join us today from Ottawa, Ontario, as Vice Admiral Angus Topshi. Vice Admiral Topshi is the commander of the Royal Canadian Navy. Prior to assuming the duties of his current role in May 2022, Topshi was commander of Maritime Forces Pacific, out of Canadian Forces Base Esquimalt. Topshi has served in high-level positions, deeply involved with Arctic issues throughout his onshore career. I've had the opportunity to discuss some of these things personally with the Admiral, sorry, Vice Admiral, and uh, really looking forward to doing this. Thanks so much, Angus, for joining us. I'm delighted to be a part of the podcast, Kelly. I listen to it uh, every week and enjoy the insights that I gain. Uh, So thanks for doing it. Well, and this is a bit out of our remit, but it's really important uh, because... Well, then we're going to get into that. And let's start with the Northwest Package. Sorry. Let's start with the Northwest Passage and speculation that climate change might increase shipping in the region. You know, I, I'm going to, I'm throwing, I, this is pretty much a softball. <laughs> how, is na- how is navigation in the nor- Northwest Passage currently? And, and how has, and actually, how has it changed over the last couple of decades? Yeah, so there's been a lot of changes up north, um, you know, as we see the effects of climate change. And so there are periods of time in the summer navigation season when there's a lot less ice than we've ever seen uh, before. Um, but navigation is never going to be easy up there. To start with, we've, you know, we collectively have only surveyed about 10% of the Arctic archipelago. And so the navigation information is pretty good around the commonly navigated paths, but not so great once you, you venture off the beaten path, so to speak. And as well, the ice doesn't just disappear. It actually, global warming has increased the complexity. And so the way the Arctic circulation works is there's a big Arctic gyre that works to bring the ice up against the Western edge of the Arctic archipelago. And that's all the old multi-year ice that creates these old ice inclusions in amongst the new ice that become particularly dangerous to ships that aren't prepared for them and can really complicate uh, navigation through there. You can still run into ice jams, um, you can still run into frustrations trying to get to where you want to get on the, at the time you want to get as you go through the north. And so we're really enjoying the experience in the Canadian Navy of relearning how to operate in the north, because the last time we did that before the delivery of the Harry DeWolf class was in the 1950s when we had uh, HMCS Labrador. So why do you, I'm going to go off a little bit of script here, but it, it really is understandably in the responsibilities of the Canadian Navy. There's some new kit, right? We've got we've got new equipment and um uh, it seems to me that sometimes even in July, you could, you could get in a situation navigating where you'd have a point of no return. You'd have to turn around. Is that, would that be fair? Or, or are we, is our new kit going to allow us more, more, uh, adaptability to the, to the pathways? Yeah, we're really excited about the Harry DeWolf class. That's our new Arctic and offshore patrol vessel. 
Uh, so it was designed to a Polar Class 4 standard with Polar Class 5 at the bow and the stern. So it, what that means is it can comfortably break a meter of uh, new ice. Um, but in fact, we've seen in operations that it's gone beyond that and it works extremely well. In fact, it's probably working better than we could have hoped for in terms of its ice breaking capabilities and its range and reach in the north. So the nature of Arctic operations is no matter how big an icebreaker you have, there's going to be times that you just can't get through to a place. Um, obviously, when Canada builds the heavy icebreakers, that will really inc massively increase our reach and scope and, and extend it into the winter months. But the Harry to Wolf class can pretty much get everywhere it needs to be able to get to throughout the summer navigation season, which really runs from uh, July to October uh, up in the Arctic and uh, in the approaches to the Arctic. So you just mentioned a new class of icebreaker. Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. The Harry to Wolf class, sorry, if you're talking about the Canadian Navy ones, what we've built is the Arctic and Offshore Patrol Ship, the Harry to Wolf class. The government of Canada has committed to building two heavy icebreakers, one in the uh, Victoria in the C-SPAN yard in Vancouver and another in the Davy yard in Quebec. Uh, but that's a Coast Guard projects. And so we're looking forward to the Coast Guard delivering that capability for Canada. Okay, so that that's a, a separate service of the of the of our uh, defense. Um, let's let's talk about uh, business here a bit for a bit. Yeah, <laughs> a week ago today, actually November sixteenth, the federal government confirmed that the Baffinland Iron Mines expansion plan for the Mary River mine on Baffin Island in Nunavut would not be going forward. The associated port inf infrastructure upgrades and increased shipping volumes in Canada's Arctic are therefore unlikely to proceed. Um, does this, uh, I'd, I'd like your off the cuff comments about that if you're able, but more importantly, from the perspective of the Navy, how does this change planning and activities that you've, that, you know, the Arctic is, a, this is a, we're talking long-term situations here. You, this must be, I don't know how that was received by the Navy, but feel free to tell us as much as you can about that. Yeah, so the Navy doesn't, we don't get involved in decisions about restorist extraction or exploitation. Those are all decisions made at the territorial and uh, federal government levels in terms of um, when and how they'll get approval for projects like that. But obviously, we were interested in the facilities that they were building, the facilities that they're currently operating in phase one of that project, and what that would imply for shipping. Up in the Arctic, it's a pretty distant and desolate area, and we, we treat it as an expeditionary theater. Um, which seems odd because it's Canadian territory. But what we mean by that is that when we head up north, we know that anything we're going to need to support our operations, we have to bring with us. We don't want to be a burden on any of the communities of the north. We don't want to depend on them to, to resupply us because they're already challenged enough to get their own supplies up there. We don't want to take from those communities. So all resupply efforts that we do in the north are conscious and deliberate actions, either through our fueling facility at Nana Civic or through the uh, Cambridge Bay, where we actually have uh, plans to deploy you know, forces and supplies in there whenever we've got a Harry DeWolf class passing through. As far as the, I mean, I think what the Baffin land decision shows is that any resource extraction in the North is a complicated business. Uh, it's an expensive business. It involves a lot of procedures and approvals to, to really see that, you know, how we can do this. And so we know that there's gonna be a gradual increase in shipping and everything else in the North. I think it's going to come in fits and starts as you see projects like this either proceed or not proceed. Uh, and that's another reason why I'm not really worried about a massive influx in traffic into the, to the Northwest Passage. Whatever traffic we see in the Northwest Passage is, is going to be generated. It's either going to be going to a place in Canada or coming from a place in Canada. So as you pointed out, we're not going to see the forecast increase in shipping with the, you know, with phase two not going ahead for Baffinland. But there might be other things that bring that. 
what we won't see is international shipping probably going through the Northwest Passage because it's never going to be the most logical route from point A to point B unless one of those two places is in the Canadian North. That's interesting because I, and I'm going to get to some of the things that I've, I've, I've seen in your presentations before and, and, but let's, let's go halfway around the world and talk about, about uh, the Baltic Sea and, um, and the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines and implications for subsea infrastructure. For anyone who isn't aware, the Nord Stream 1 and 2, and I'm sure most people are, natural gas pipelines from Russia to Germany were ruptured on September 26th of this year. While investigations are ongoing, it seems, evidence seems to indicate sabotage. And uh, in the weeks and months afterward, European navies operated in the area, operating in the area have increased their activities uh, such that the security of other pieces of infrastructure in the North Sea, the Baltic, and the Mediterranean must be affected. Um, do you have any insight into these events and, and response taken by armed forces in the area to help secure critical infrastructure? And, and could this mean anything, this type of thing mean anything for Canada? Yeah, so obviously we're monitoring closely the developments there. Um, I've spoken to other Navy commanders around the world and we're all um, very concerned about the possibility of damage to undersea infrastructure. In fact, the US Navy is now starting to talk in terms of the potential for something they call seabed warfare where we're just watching out for critical infrastructure on the seabed. And these can also include the sort of transatlantic telecommunication cables or transoceanic telecommunications cables. The thing that bring connect continents for internet, um, absolutely critical to international financial markets and everything else. So these are all things that we, we know are on the seabed floor that could be disrupted by, by accident, by terrorism, by state on state action. So we don't, uh, I'm not gonna speculate about what happened in the Nord Stream uh, with anything beyond what's in the media. But I will say that we are very careful to make sure that we're aware of any undersea infrastructure within Canada and that we pay attention to what's going on around it as part of the effort we make overall for such situational awareness. So we're always monitoring activities on Canadian waters, under Canadian waters, and in the approaches to, to Canada and North America. Do we have similar infrastructure uh, that, that, we, that, you know, could, could you be more specific? So I'm not sure what pipelines that we might have that would go subterranean, to be honest, uh, like sub subsurface in the oceans. Um, we've paid more attention, to be honest, so far, but to telecommunication cables and other things like that. Um, but every time something happens anywhere in the world, I can tell you that the intelligence community takes a hard look at it and asks themselves two questions is one, do we have a similar vulnerability? And two, now that we found this thing that we weren't expecting, what other things that we weren't expecting should we be potentially looking at? And it's always a reminder that um, innovation can happen on either side. Uh, you know, the adversaries are always trying to innovate and find new ways to, to exploit uh, opportunities to create uh, chaos. That kind of brings me to my next question. I remember at a pre when I saw a presentation you, give, you gave at a conference, you had a uh, map of the earth and just if the, if the listener could visualize a picture taken straight, north, straight down from the North Pole and, and it was very clear the intricacies and navigational challenges of the Northwest Passage relative to uh, a straight line across the ocean, the Arctic Ocean at the North Pole. Um, which if you, if you could, again, I asked the, the listener to visualize some point in Russia to a point in Norway, going circumnavigating the earth from the east to west, west to east. Um, what's the, 
like how, how does the Navy and how do mariners look at that potentiality of navigation? Like through, uh, is it possible to, is, is it, are we going to be seeing navigation straight across the top of the earth given climate change or am I, am I dreaming in technicolor here? Well, so I guess the answer is a uh, two part one. We're kind of hoping we never do see open water navigation directly across the North Pole because that would indicate that we got into a pretty bad spot from a, a climate change point of view. But unfortunately, some of the projections are now showing us that that could possibly be in our future. And certainly at the height of the summer navigation season, there are going to be areas of open water that you can skirt, probably not right across the pole, but you know, far away, far enough away from Russia that you're not in their northern sea route, you're not requiring the rice breaker services or their pilot and port fees. Um, and suddenly that becomes a commercially attractive routing for this period of the navigation season. The concern from the Navy perspective is always whenever you see traffic, there's the potential for accident. Um, and we tend to respond to those types of things. Um, it's always going to be a difficult environment in which to operate because in the high north, communications are more challenging, navigation is more challenging, and ice never acts in predictable. Well, it acts relatively predictably, but it, I guess I would say just characterize that as predictably unpredictable. Um, so you never quite know where you're going to see those old ice inclusions, the icebergs and other things that can cause chaos up there. So we're interested in it from a military point of view. It's not going to be a, a rooting for us because our hulls are actually for things like our frigates and most uh, Navy combatants. Our hulls are actually quite thin, thinner than most commercial ships because we weights at a premium and we, we don't waste weight on the hull of the ship unless we need to. Whereas big cargo ships are designed to last long times, bump into things and, and brush off ice if they need to. So they tend to be built much, uh, much thicker. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I don't know if you can answer this or not, Angus, but you know, in, in my experience from what I've looked at and read, Russia has a lot of uh, big ice capability and in the, in the resource sector with ice breaking, ice-breaking capable um, uh, LNG carriers, for instance, are we way, are we behind, or is this something that we shouldn't be worried about? I, 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 it, it strikes me as important in the, in the security realm of where, and I don't, I know that the Canadian Navy's as aware, as aware as it can be of what Russia's doing, especially as we talk about the re or the revetting of and rebuilding of the NORAD, uh, uh, framework in the north. Could you comment on any of that? Yeah, certainly. So a large part of making sure that we assure sovereignty and security in the north is the $40 billion that Canada is investing in NORAD modernization. And so that's a, you know, NORAD is a fantastic, it's the only binational command in the world where Canada and the U.S. work side by side in a completely integrated alliance to defend North America. Um, when it comes to things like icebreaking, the Russians do have the largest and most powerful icebreakers in the world at the moment, um, but that's because they also operate the Northern Sea Route, and that's essential to about 22% of Russian GDP comes from their northern reaches. And so the, they've got a lot of development up there that they enable in the winter months and, and in the marginal seasons with heavy icebreaking. And the Northern Sea Route, if you pay for it, they will escort you through there with the icebreakers. They do it with their Navy forces as well. Their icebreakers will escort their Navy should they ever be doing a transfer from one, one coast to the other. Um, it's, you know, so the government of Canada has committed to building uh, icebreakers for us. It's in the national shipbuilding strategy, which serves to build uh, ships for both the Coast Guard and the Navy. So they've been building a number of medium icebreakers at the Navy Yard, the heavy icebreakers I mentioned already. One's going to be built in the Navy Yard, one in the C-SPAN Yard in Vancouver. Um, there's also a whole series of other ships to round out the Coast Guard fleet. And for the Canadian Navy, the one we're most excited to get down the road is the Canadian surface combatant, uh, which will be built in the Irving Yard in Halifax uh, starting in just a couple of years.
And what's the timing on that? And how much, how far north can the surface combatant go? I guess with, with cover or uh, behind an icebreaker, go as far as it wanted, right? Yeah. And so again, it, you know, one of the things about operating in and near ice is that it affects the maneuverability of the ship um, because warships are not designed to be operating in and near ice. Um, so can we go up there? Absolutely. It always depends on what's the purpose of going up there. So if it was to take out some other threat, another country's warship, perhaps that's operating in our north, a warship of ours is one of the ways to do it. But I might ask my friend, uh, the commander of the Air Force, to see if he could take care of it with one of his right. planes. Because that'll react much more quickly, cover a much wider area. And I won't have to, it, none of it, neither of us have to worry about it hitting an iceberg. So it's really a matter of making sure we're making best use of all of the capabilities Canada has with its armed forces and the rest of the capabilities that uh, the whole of government brings. Because in today's age, what we're learning is that's about something we're calling pan domain warfare. So not just the traditional air, land, and sea domains of warfare, but also cyberspace and space. And increasingly in the information domain, we're in the information area. It's about what impacts and effects is government helping us to generate either through sanctions, which have proven to be very effective against Russia, uh, through you know the exploitation of intelligence and information, uh, or through diplomacy. You know, so at the end of the day, if we can avoid conflict by deterring it or by negotiating it away, then that's a much better outcome than putting people's lives at risk. You know, you, I'm going to circle back to a comment you made that just astounded me: that 22% of Russia's GDP comes out of the Arctic. Uh, their Arctic. Um, it's unbelievable. That's a little, that's a lot. Like it's, and I, I you know, it's um, the, um, what the current situation is the, are, 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 are there navies um, or is there any attempt to stifle that economy given Russia's situation in Eastern Europe and Ukraine, um, given that it could cause friction and, and push back in the fog of war? To against Russia is that is anything like that happening in the north or or, or you maybe not sure so, that's probably outside of my reach yeah. so <laughs> so just to be clear the conflict with Russia and Ukraine is between Russia and Ukraine uh, NATO has been quite clear that it is uh, our concern is that this is an illegal and unprovoked aggression against the Ukraine uh, and that we're working to support Ukraine in their efforts against Russia the government of Canada has imposed a quite extensive sanctions against Russia to to sort of indicate that we don't support uh, this behavior uh, and we look forward to them withdrawing all of their forces from the Ukraine but uh, are we doing anything directly against uh, Russia no we militarily no yeah I just thought I'd throw that out there <laughs> Angus this has been fascinating and and um, you know as as we continue down the road of you know I think more global friction uh, there's more security issues coming and and the uh, and the move toward the the re, the, the rebuilding of NORAD we look forward to having you on the podcast again. This was fun. I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, there's no doubt we're in an era of uh, strategic competition right now with a lot of uncertainty around the world, a lot of really difficult security challenges. So uh, pleased to see that the Canadian government is doing a defense policy update just for that reason, to make sure that our defense policy is set for this uh, strategic environment. And we're working really hard to reconstitute the Canadian Armed Forces. So if any of your listeners are looking for a job opportunity, we are hiring the Canadian Navy and eager to welcome any keen young Canadian to, to join our ranks. Well, we'll certainly push that out. I, I, I totally agree. There's, there's um, you know, we, we have a, 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 a Canada knows how to build war fighters and um, it's as important as the, you know, as I, Joe and I discuss every day, I'm a realist by ideal ideologue and uh it's not the greatest place to be right now 
and I don't like to continue to say that I've been vindicated by by security issues, but unfortunately, I believe that's the case. I got one last question. We always ask our our guests what they're reading these days, and I'm gonna. I don't want to hear that you're reading about Mahan and Mackinder. That you've already done that. No, I'm reading a book called uh, The Age of Wood by Roland Enos. It's a fascinating uh, study of the impact of wood on the evolution of, uh, of humans throughout history and how it's impacted. And it goes back into to some facts I didn't know about uh, how the Royal Navy was intricately built around uh, wood supplies, but also how closely the ability of the early humans to use wood affected their, their development. So a book that took me in places and uh, revelations I really wasn't expecting. Well, that's a good one. We haven't seen anything near that in our in our quest for information. So we'll certainly get that out to the listeners. And uh, thanks again, Angus, for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Energy Security Cubed on the Canadian Global Affairs Podcast Network. You can find the CGAI Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give it a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you like this episode and want to help us keep creating content, you can support us by donating at cgai.ca slash support. Energy Security Cubed is brought to you by our team at CGAI. Thanks go out to our producer, Joe Kalnan, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Kelly Ogle. Thanks for joining us on Energy Security Cubed.